Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. My Lady Greensleeves is a science fiction novel written by Frederick Pohl, a renowned American author in the genre. The novel was first published in 1968. In My Lady Greensleeves, Paul combines elements of science fiction and espionage. The story takes place in a future where Earth has established colonies on other planets. The protagonist, Roger Tyson, is a secret agent who finds himself on a mission to uncover a mysterious plot that threatens the stability of the interstellar colonies. Roger Tyson's mission leads him to a planet called Greensleeves, where he encounters a captivating and enigmatic woman named My Lady Greensleeves. As Tyson delves deeper into his investigation, he becomes entangled in a web of political intrigue, dangerous alliances, and unexpected discoveries. Pohl's writing often incorporates social and political commentary, and My Lady Greensleeves is no exception. The novel explores themes such as power struggles, colonization, and the impact of technology on society. Pohl's engaging storytelling and imaginative world-building contribute to the intrigue and suspense of the plot. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Hi. His name was Liam O'Leary and there was something stinking in his nostrils. It was the smell of trouble. He hadn't found what the trouble was yet, but he would. That was his business. He was a captain of guards in a state's general correctional institution better known to its inmates as the Jug, and if he hadn't been able to detect the scent of trouble brewing a cell block away, he would never have survived to reach his captaincy. And her name, he saw, was Sue Ann Bradley, detainee No. WFA-656-R. He frowned at the rap sheet, trying to figure out what got a girl like her into a place like this. And, what was more important, why she couldn't adjust herself to it, now that she was in. He demanded, why wouldn't you mop out your cell? The girl lifted her head angrily and took a step forward. The block guard, Sidero, growled warningly, Watch it, Auntie. O'Leary shook his head. Let her talk, Sidero. It said in the Civil Service Guide to Prison Administration, detainees will be permitted to speak in their own behalf in disciplinary proceedings. And O'Leary was a man who lived by the book. She burst out, I never got a chance. That old witch Matthias never told me I was supposed to mop up. She banged on the door and said, slush up, sister. And then, ten minutes later, 
She called the guards and told them I refused to mop. The block guard guffawed. Wipe talk that's what she was telling you to do. Captain, you know what's funny about this? This Bradley is Dash. Shut up, Sidero. Chapter 2 Captain O'Leary put down his pencil and looked at the girl. She was attractive and yet not beyond hope, surely. Maybe she had got off to a wrong start, but the question was, would putting her in the disciplinary block help straighten her out? He rubbed his ear and looked past her at the line of prisoners on the rap detail, waiting for him to judge their cases. He said patiently, Bradley, the rules are you have to mop out your cell. If you didn't understand what Matthias was talking about, you should have asked her. Now I'm warning you, the next time dash. Hey, Captain, wait. Sidero was looking alarmed. This isn't a first offense. Look at the rap sheet. Yesterday she pulled the same thing in the mess hall. He shook his head reprovingly at the prisoner. The block guard had to break up a fight between her and another wench and she claimed the same business said she didn't understand when the other one asked her to move along. He added virtuously, the guard warned her then that next time she'd get the green sleeves for sure. Inmate Bradley seemed to be on the verge of tears. She said tautly, I don't care. I don't care. O'Leary stopped her. That's enough. Three days in block O. It was the only thing to do for her own sake as much as for his. He had managed, by strength of will, not to hear that she had omitted to say sir every time she spoke to him, but he couldn't keep it up forever and he certainly couldn't overlook hysteria. And hysteria was clearly the next step for her. All the same, he stared after her as she left. He handed the rap sheet to Sidero and said upsetly, too bad a kid like her has to be here. What's she in for? You didn't know, Captain? Sidero leered. She's in for conspiracy to violate the category class laws. Don't waste your time with her, Captain. She's a figure lover. Captain O'Leary took a long drink of water from the fountain marked civil service. But it didn't wash the taste out of his mouth, the smell from his nose. What got into a girl to get her mixed up with that kind of dirty business? He checked out of the cell blocks and walked across the yard, wondering about her. She had every advantage decent civil service parents, a good education, everything a girl could wish for. If anything, she had had a better environment than O'Leary himself, and look what she had made of it. The direction of evolution is towards specialization and man is no exception, but with the difference that his is the one species that creates its own environment in which to specialize. From the moment that clans formed, specialization began the hunters using the weapons made by the flint chippers, the food cooked in clay pots made by the ceramists, over fire made by the shaman who guarded the sacred flame. 
civilization merely increased the extent of specialization. From the born mechanic and the man with the gift of gab, society evolved to the point of smaller contact and less communication between the specializations until now they could understand each other on only the most basic physical necessities and not even always then. But this was desirable for the more specialists, the higher the degree of civilization. The ultimate should be the complete segregation of each specialization social and genetic measures to make them breed true, because the unspecialized man is an uncivilized man, or at any rate he does not advance civilization. And letting the specializations mix would produce genetic undesirables, clerk laborer or professional GI misfits, for example, being only half specialized, would be good at no specialization. And the basis of this specialization society was, the aptitude groups are the true races of mankind. Putting it into law was only the legal enforcement of a demonstrable fact. Evening, Captain. A bleary old inmate orderly stood up straight and touched his cap as a leery passed by. Evening, Chapter 3. O'Leary noted, with the part of his mind that always noted those things, that the orderly had been leaning on his broom until he noticed the captain coming by. Of course, there wasn't much to sweep the spray machines and sweeperdozers had been over the cobblestones of the yard twice already that day. But it was an inmate's job to keep busy. And it was a guard captain's job to notice when they didn't. There wasn't anything wrong with that job he told himself. It was a perfectly good civil service position better than post office clerk, not as good as congressman, but a job you could be proud to hold. He was proud of it. It was right that he should be proud of it. He was civil service born and bred, and naturally he was proud and content to do a good, clean civil service job. If he had happened to be born a figate clerk, he corrected himself if he had happened to be born a clerk, why, he would have been proud of that, too. There wasn't anything wrong with being a clerk or a mechanic or a soldier, or even a laborer, for that matter. Good laborers were the salt of the earth. They weren't smart, maybe, but they had a well, a sort of natural, relaxed joy of living. O'Leary was a broad-minded man and many times he had thought almost with a touch of envy how comfortable it must be to be a white laborer. No responsibilities. No worries. Just an easy, slow routine of work and loaf, work and loaf. Of course, he wouldn't really want that kind of life because he was civil service and not the kind to try to cross over class barriers that weren't meant to be. Evening, Captain. He nodded to the mechanic inmate who was, theoretically, in charge of maintaining the prison's carpool just inside the gate. Evening, Conan, he said. Conan, now he was a big buck greaser and he would be there for the next hour, languidly poking a piece of fluff out of the air filter on the prison jeep. Lazy, sure. Undependable. Certainly, but he kept the cars going and 
O'Leary thought approvingly, when his sentence was up in another year or so, he would go back to his life with his status restored, a mechanic on the outside as he had been inside, and he certainly would never risk coming back to the jug by trying to pass his civil service or anything else. He knew his place. So why didn't this girl, this Sue Ann Bradley, know hers? 2. Every prison has its green sleeves sometimes they are called by different names. Old Marquette called it the Canary, Louisiana State called it the Red Hats, elsewhere it was called the Hole, the Snake Pit, the Klondike. When you're in it, you don't much care what it is called, it is a place for punishment. And punishment is what you get. Block O in a state's general correctional institution was the disciplinary block, and because of the green straitjackets its inhabitants wore, it was called the green sleeves. It was a community of its own, an enclave within the larger city-state that was the Jug. And like any other community, it had its leading citizens, two of them. Their names were Sour and Flock. Sue Ann Bradley heard them before she reached the Greensleeves. She was in a detachment of three unfortunates like herself, convoyed by an irritable guard, climbing the steel steps toward Block O from the floor below when she heard the yelling. Hello, screamed Sour from one end of the cell block and Yao WW shrieked Flock at the other. The inside deck guard of Block O looked nervously at the outside deck guard. The outside guard looked impassively back after all, he was on the outside. The inside guard muttered, wipe rats. They're getting on my nerves. The outside guard shrugged. Detail, halt. The two guards turned to see what was coming in as the three new candidates for the green sleeves slumped to a stop at the head of the stairs. Here they are, Sidero told them. Take good care of him, will you? Especially the lady she's going to like it here, because there's plenty of wipes and greasers and figures to keep her company. He laughed coarsely and abandoned his charges to the block O guards. The outside guard said sourly, a woman, for God's sake. Now O'Leary knows I hate it when there's a woman in here. It gets the others all riled up. Let them in, the inside guard told him. The others are riled up already. Sue and Bradley looked carefully at the floor and paid them no attention. The outside guard pulled the switch that turned on the tanglefoot electronic fields that swamped the floor of the block corridor and of each individual cell. While the fields were on, you could ignore the prisoners they simply could not move fast enough against the electronic drag of the field to do any harm. But it was a rule that, even in Block O, you didn't leave the tangler fields on all the time only when the cell doors had to be opened or a prisoner's restraining garment removed. Suen walked bravely forward through the open gate and fell flat on her face. It was her first experience of a tanglefoot field. It was like walking through molasses. The guard guffawed and lifted her up by one shoulder. Take it easy, Auntie. Come on, get in your cell. 
He steered her in the right direction and pointed to a green-sleeved straitjacket on the cell cot. Put that on. Being as you're a lady, we won't tie it up, but the rules say you got to wear it and the rules hey. She's crying. He shook his head, marveling. It was the first time he had ever seen a prisoner cry in the green sleeves. However, he was wrong. Sue Ann's shoulders were shaking, but not from tears. Sue Ann Bradley had got a good look at Sour and at Flock as she passed them by and she was fighting off an almost uncontrollable urge to retch. Chapter 3 Sour and Flock were what are called prison wolves. They were laborers dash wipes, for short or, at any rate, they had been once. They had spent so much time in prisons that it was sometimes hard even for them to remember what they really were outside. Sour was a big, grinning redhead with eyes like a water moccasin. Flock was a lithe five-footer with the build of a water moccasin and the sad, stupid eyes of a calf. Sour stopped yelling for a moment. Hey, Flock. What do you want, Sour? called Flock from his own cell. We got a lady with us. Maybe we ought to cut out this yelling so as not to disturb the lady. He screeched with howling, maniacal laughter. Anyway, if we don't cut this out, they'll get us in trouble, Flock. Oh, you think so? shrieked Flock. Geez, I wish you hadn't said that, Sour. You got me scared. I'm so scared, I'm gonna have to yell. The howling started all over again. The inside guard finished putting the new prisoners away and turned off the tangler field once more. He licked his lips. Say, you want to take a turn in here for a while? Ah. Uh. The outside guard shook his head. You're yellow. The inside guard said moodily. Ah, I don't know why I don't quit this lousy job. Hey, you. Pipe down or I'll come in and beat your head off. Yee, screamed Sour in a shrill falsetto. I'm scared. Then he grinned at the guard, all but his water moccasin eyes. Don't you know you can't hurt a wipe by hitting him on the head, boss? Shut up, yelled the inside guard. Sue Ann Bradley's weeping now was genuine. She simply could not help it. The crazy yelling of the hard-timers, Sour and Flock, was getting under her skin. They weren't even even human, she told herself miserably, trying to weep silently so as not to give the guards the satisfaction of hearing her they were animals. Resentment and anger she could understand. She told herself doggedly that resentment and anger were natural and right. They were perfectly normal expressions of the freedom-loving citizens' rebellion against the vile and stifling system of category classes. It was good that Sour and Flock still had enough spirit to struggle against the vicious system. But did they have to scream so? The senseless yelling was driving her crazy. 
She abandoned herself to weeping and she didn't even care who hurt her anymore. Senseless. It never occurred to Sue and Bradley that it might not be senseless because noise hides noise. But then she hadn't been a prisoner very long. Three. I smell trouble, said O'Leary to the warden. Trouble? Trouble? Warden Schlotbier clutched his throat and his little round eyes looked terrified as perhaps they should have. Warden Godfrey Schlotbier was the almighty Caesar of 10,000 inmates in the jug, but privately he was a fussy old man trying to hold on to the last decent job he would have in his life. Trouble? What trouble? O'Leary shrugged. Different things. You know Lafon from Block A? This afternoon, he was playing ball with the laundry orderlies in the yard. The warden, faintly relieved, faintly annoyed, scolded, O'Leary, what did you want to worry me for? There's nothing wrong with playing ball in the yard. That's what recreation periods are for. You don't see what I mean, warden. Lafon was a professional on the outside an architect. Those laundry cons were laborers. Pros and wipes don't mix, it isn't natural. And there are other things. O'Leary hesitated, frowning. How could you explain to the warden that it didn't smell right? For instance, well, there's Aunt Matthias in the women's block. She's a pretty good old girl, that's why she's the block orderly. She's a lifer, she's got no place to go, she gets along with the other women. But today she put a woman named Bradley on report. Why? Because she told Bradley to mop up and wipe talk and Bradley didn't understand. Now Matthias wouldn't dash. The warden raised his hand. Please. O'Leary, don't bother me about that kind of stuff. He sighed heavily and rubbed his eyes. He poured himself a cup of steaming black coffee from a brew pot, reached in a desk drawer for something, hesitated, glanced at O'Leary, then dropped a pale blue tablet into the cup. He drank it down eagerly, ignoring the scalding heat. He leaned back, looking suddenly happier and much more assured. O'Leary, you're a guard captain, right? And I'm your warden. You have your job, keeping the inmates in line, and I have mine. Now your job is just as important as my job, he said piously. Everybody's job is just as important as everybody else's, right? But we have to stick to our own jobs. We don't want to try to pass. O'Leary snapped erect, abruptly angry. Pass. What the devil way was that for the warden to talk to him? Excuse the expression, O'Leary, the warden said anxiously. I mean, after all, specialization is the goal of civilization, right? He was a great man for platitudes, was Warden Schluckbeer. You know you don't want to worry about my end of running the prison. And I don't want to worry about yours. You see? 
and he folded his hands and smiled like a civil service Buddha. Chapter 4 O'Leary choked back his temper. Warden, I'm telling you that there's trouble coming up. I smell the signs. Handle it, then, snapped the warden, irritated at last. But suppose it's too big to handle. Suppose dash. It isn't, the warden said positively. Don't borrow trouble with all your supposing, O'Leary. He sipped the remains of his coffee, made a wry face, poured a fresh cup and, with an elaborate show of not noticing what he was doing, dropped three of the pale blue tablets into it this time. He sat beaming into space, waiting for the jolt to take effect. Well, then, he said at last. You just remember what I've told you tonight, O'Leary, and we'll get along fine. Specialization is the dash-o, cursed the thing. His phone was ringing. The warden picked it up irritably. That was the trouble with those pale blue tablets, thought O'Leary. They gave you a lift, but they put you on edge. Hello, barked the warden, not even glancing at the view screen. What the devil do you want? Don't you know I'm what? You did what? You're going to what? He looked at the view screen at last with a look of pure horror. Whatever he saw on it, it did not reassure him. His eyes opened like clamshells in a steamer. O'Leary, he said faintly, my mistake. And he hung up more or less by accident, the handset dropped from his fingers. The person on the other end of the phone was calling from cell block O. Five minutes before, he hadn't been anywhere near the phone and it didn't look as if his chances of ever getting near it were very good. Because five minutes before, he was in his cell with the rest of the hard-timers of the green sleeves. His name was Flock. He was still yelling. Sue and Bradley, in the cell across from him, thought that maybe, after all, the man was really in pain. Maybe the crazy screams were screams of agony because certainly his face was the face of an agonized man. The outside guard bellowed, okay, okay, take 10. Sue and froze, waiting to see what would happen. What actually did happen was that the guard reached up and closed the switch that actuated the tangler fields on the floors of the cells. The prison walls were humanitarian even for the dregs that inhabited the green sleeves. Ten minutes out of every two hours, even the worst case had to be allowed to take his hands out of the restraining garment. Rest period it was called in the rule book. The inmates had a less lovely term for it. Chapter 5 At the guard's yell, the inmates jumped to their feet. Bradley was a little slow getting off the edge of the steel slab but nobody had warned her that the eddy currents in the tangler fields had a way of making metal smoke hot. She gasped but didn't cry out. Score one more painful lesson in her new language course. She rubbed the backs of her thighs gingerly and slowly, slowly, for the eddy currents did not permit you to move fast.
It was like pushing against rubber. The faster you tried to move, the greater the resistance. The guard peered genially into her cell. You're okay, Auntie. She proudly ignored him as he slogged deliberately away on his rounds. He didn't have to untie her and practically stand over her while she attended to various personal matters as he did with the male prisoners. It was not much to be grateful for, but Sue Ann Bradley was grateful. At least she didn't have to live quite like a fig like an underprivileged clerk, she told herself, conscience stricken. Across the hall, the guard was saying irritably, what the hell's the matter with you? He opened the door of the cell with an asbestos handle key held in a canvas glove. Flock was in that cell and he was doubled over. The guard looked at him doubtfully. It could be a trick, maybe. Couldn't it? But he could see Flock's face and the agony in it was real enough. And Flock was gasping through real tears, cramps. I I dash. Ah, you wipes always got pain in the gut. The guard lumbered around Flock to the drawstrings at the back of the jacket. Funny smell in here, he told himself not for the first time. And imagine, some people didn't believe that wipes had a smell of their own. But this time, he realized cloudily, it was a rather unusual smell. Something burning. Almost like meat scorching. It wasn't pleasant. He finished untying Flock and turned away, let the stinking wipe take care of his own troubles. He only had 10 minutes to get all the way around Block O and the inmates complained like crazy if he didn't make sure they all got the most possible free time. He was pretty good at snowshoeing through the Tangler field. He was a little vain about it, even, at times he had been known to boast of his ability to make the rounds in two minutes every time. Every time but this. For Flock moaned behind him, oddly close. The guard turned, but not quickly enough. There was Flock astonishingly, he was half out of his jacket, his arms hadn't been in the sleeves at all. And in one of the hands, incredibly, there was something that glinted and smoked. All right, croaked Flock, tears trickling out of eyes nearly shut with pain. But it wasn't the tears that held the guard, it was the shining, smoking thing, now poised at his throat. A shiv. It looked as though it had been made out of a bed spring, ripped loose from its frame God knows how, hidden inside the green sleeve jacket God knows how filed, filed to sharpness over endless hours. No wonder Flock moaned the eddy currents in the shift were slowly cooking his hand and the blister against his abdomen where the shift had been hidden during other rest periods felt like raw acid. All right, whispered Flock, just walk out the door and you won't get hurt. Unless the other screw makes trouble, you won't get hurt, so tell him not to, you hear? He was nearly fainting with the pain, but he hadn't let go. He didn't let go and he didn't stop. Four, 
It was Flock on the phone to the warden Flock with his eyes still streaming tears, Flock with Sour standing right behind him, menacing the two bound deck guards. Sour shoved Flock out of the way. Hey, warden, he said, and the voice was a cheerful bray, though the serpent eyes were cold and hating. Warden, you've got to get a medic in here. My boy Flock, he hurt himself real bad and he needs a doctor. He gestured playfully at the guards with the shiv. I tell you, Warden, I got this knife and I got your guards here. Enough said? So get a medic in here quick, you hear? And he snapped the connection. O'Leary said, Warden, I told you I smell trouble. The warden lifted his head, glared, started feebly to speak, hesitated, and picked up the long-distance phone. He said sadly to the prison operator, Give me the governor fast. Riot. The word spread out from the prison on seven league boots. It snatched the city governor out of a friendly game of seniority with his manager and their wives and just when he was holding the pork barrel joker concealed in the hole. It broke up the base championship scramble finals at Hap Arnold Field to the south as half the contestants had to scramble in earnest to a red alert that was real. It reached to police precinct houses and TV newsrooms and highway checkpoints and from there it filtered into the homes and lives of the 19 million persons that lived within a few dozen miles of the jug. Riot. And yet fewer than half a dozen men were involved. A handful of men and the enormous bulk of the city-state quivered in every limb and class. In its 10 million homes, in its hundreds of thousands of public places, the city-state's people shook under the impact of the news from the prison. For the news touched them where their fears lay. Riot. And not merely a street brawl among roistering wipes, or a barroom fight of greasers relaxing from a hard day at the plant. The riot was down among the corrupt sludge that underlay the state itself. Wipes brawled with wipes and no one cared, but in the jug, all classes were cast together. Chapter 5 Forty miles to the south, Hap Arnold Field was a blaze of light. The airmen tumbled out of their quarters and day rooms at the screech of the alert siren, and behind them their wives and children stretched and yawned and worried. An alert. The older kids fussed and complained and their mothers shut them up. No, there wasn't any alert scheduled for tonight. No, they didn't know where daddy was going. No, the kids couldn't get up yet it was the middle of the night. And as soon as they had the kids back in bed, most of the mothers shriveled into their own airwack uniforms and headed for the briefing area to hear. They caught the words from a distance not quite correctly. Riot, gasped an aircraft swimming first class, mother of three. The wipes. I told Charlie they get out of hand in Ellis. We aren't safe. You know how they are about GI women. I'm going right home and get a club and stand right by the door and dash. Club, snapped Alice, 
radar scope sergeant with two children querulously awake in her nursery at home. What in God's name is the use of a club? You can't hurt a wipe by hitting him on the head. You'd better come along to supply with me and draw a gun you'll need it before this night is over. But the airmen themselves heard the briefing loud and clear over the scramble call speakers and they knew it was not merely a matter of trouble in the wipe quarters. The jug. The governor himself had called them out. They were to fly interdicting missions at such and such levels on such and such flight circuits around the prison. The rockets took off on fountains of fire and the jets took off with a whistling roar and last of all, the helicopters took off and they were the ones who might actually accomplish something. They took up their picket posts on the prison perimeter, a pilot and two bombardiers in each copter, stone-faced, staring grimly alert at the prison below. They were ready for the breakout. But there wasn't any breakout. The rockets went home for fuel. The jets went home for fuel. The helicopters hung on still ready, still waiting. The rockets came back and roared harmlessly about and went away again. They stayed away. The helicopter men never faltered and never relaxed. The prison below them was washed with light from the guard posts on the walls, from the cell blocks themselves, from the mobile lights of the guard squadrons surrounding the walls. North of the prison, on the long, flat, damp developments of reclaimed land, the matchbox row houses of the clerical neighborhoods showed lights in every window as the figures stood ready to repel invasion from their undesired neighbors to the east, the wipes. In the crowded tenements of the laborers' quarters, the wipes shouted from window to window, and there were crowds in the bright streets. The whole bloody thing's going to blow up, a helicopter bombardier yelled bitterly to his pilot above the flutter and roar of the whirling blades. Look at the mobs in Greaserville. The first breakout from the jug's going to start a fight like you never saw and will be right in the middle of it. He was partly right. He would be right in the middle of it for every man, woman and child in the city-state would be right in the middle of it. There was no place anywhere that would be spared. No mixing. That was the prescription that kept the city-state alive. There's no harm in a family fighting, aren't all mechanics a family, aren't all laborers a clan, aren't all clerks and office workers related by closer ties than blood or skin? But the déclassé cons of the jug were the dregs of every class, and once they spread, the neat compartmentation of society was pierced. The breakout would mean riot on a bigger scale than any prison had ever known. But he was also partly wrong. Because the breakout wasn't seeming to come. Chapter 6 The jug itself was coming to a boil. Honor Block A, relaxed and easy at the end of another day, found itself shaken alert by strange goings-on. First there was the whir and roar of the Air Force overhead. Trouble. Then there was the sudden arrival of extra guards, 
doubling the normal complement day shift guards summoned away from their comfortable civil service homes at some urgent call. Trouble for sure. Honor Blocka wasn't used to trouble. A block was as far from the green sleeves of O Block as you could get and still be in the jug. Honor Blocka belonged to the prison's half-breeds the honor prisoners, the trustees who did guards work because there weren't enough guards to go around. They weren't Apaches or Piutes, they were camp-following engines who had sold out for the white man's firewater. The price of their service was privilege many privileges. Item, TV sets in every cell. Item, hobby tools to make gadgets for the visitor trade the only way an inmate could earn an honest dollar. Item, in consequence, an exact knowledge of everything the outside world knew and put on its TV screens, including the grim, alarming reports of trouble at a state's general and the capacity to convert their hobby tools to other uses. An honor prisoner named Wilma Lafon was watching the TV screen with an expression of rage and despair. Lafon was a credit to the jug he was a showpiece for visitors. Prison rules provided for prisoner training it was a matter of rehabilitation. Prisoner rehabilitation is a joke and a centuries-old one at that, but it had its serious uses and one of them was to keep the prisoners busy. It didn't much matter at what. Lafon, for instance, was being rehabilitated by studying architecture. The guards made a point of bringing inspection delegations to his cell to show him off. There were his walls, covered with pinups but not of women. The pictures were sketches Lafon had drawn himself. They were of buildings, highways, dams and bridges. They were splendidly conceived and immaculately executed. Loka that, the guards would rumble to their guests. There isn't an architect on the outside as good as this boy. What do you say, Wilmer? Tell the gentleman how long you've been taking these correspondence courses in architecture? Six years. Ever since he came to the jug. And Lafon would grin and bob his head, and the delegation would go, with the guard saying something like, Believe me, that Wilmer could design a whole skyscraper and it wouldn't fall down either. And they were perfectly, provably right. Not only could inmate Lafon design a skyscraper, but he had already done so. More than a dozen of them. And none had fallen down. Of course, that was more than six years back, before he was convicted and sent to the jug. He would never design another. Or if he did, it would never be built. For the plain fact of the matter was that the jug's rehabilitation courses were like rehabilitation in every prison since crime and punishment began. They kept the inmates busy. They made a show of purpose for an institution that had never had a purpose beyond punishment. And that was all. For punishment for a crime is not satisfied by a jail sentence. How does it hurt a man to feed and clothe and house him with the bills paid by the state? Lafon's punishment was that he, as an architect, was through. 
Savage tribes used to lop off a finger or an ear to punish a criminal. Civilized societies confine their amputations to bits and pieces of the personality. Chop, chop, and a man's reputation comes off. Chop, chop again, and his professional standing is gone. Chop, chop, and he has lost the respect and trust of his fellows. The jail itself isn't the punishment. The jail is only the shaman's hatchet that performs the amputation. If rehabilitation in a jail worked if it were meant to work it would be the end of jails. Rehabilitation? Rehabilitation for what? Chapter 7 Wilmer Lafon switched off the television set and silently pounded his fist into the wall. Never again to return to the professional class. For, naturally, the conviction had cost him his membership in the architectural society and that it cost him his professional standing. But still just to be out of the jug, that would be something. And his whole hope of ever getting out lay not here in honor block A, but in the turmoil of the green sleeves, a hundred meters and more than fifty armed guards away. He was a furious man. He looked into the cell next door, where a con named Garcia was trying to concentrate on a game of solitaire split fee. Once Garcia had been a professional, too, he was the closest thing to a friend Wilmer Lafon had. Maybe he could now help to get Lafon where he wanted needed to be. Lafon swore silently and shook his head. Garcia was a spineless milksop. As bad as any clerk Lafon was nearly sure there was a touch of the inkwell somewhere in his family. Shrewd and slippery enough, like all figures. But you couldn't rely on him in a pinch. Lafon would have to do it all himself. He thought for a second, ignoring the rustle and mumble of the other honor prisoners of Block A. There was no help for it, he would have to dirty his hands with physical activity. Outside on the deck, the guards were grumbling to each other. Lafon wiped the scowl off his black face, put on a smile, rehearsed what he was going to say, and politely rattled the door of his cell. Shut up down there, one of the screws bawled. Lafon recognized the voice, it was the guard named Sidero. That was all to the good. He knew Sidero and he had some plans for him. He rattled the cell door again and called, Chief, can you come here a minute, please? Sidero yelled, didn't you hear me? Shut up. But he came wandering by and looked into Lafon's tiny little cell. What the devil do you want? He growled. Lafon said ingratiatingly, what's going on, Chief? Shut your mouth. Sidero said absently and yawned. He hefted his shoulder holster comfortably. That O'Leary, what a production he had made of getting the guards back. And here he was, stuck in Block A on the night he had set aside for getting better acquainted with that little blue-eyed statistician from the census office. Ah, Chief. The television says there's something going on in the green sleeves. What's the score? Sidero had no reason not to answer him, 
but it was his unvarying practice to make a con wait before doing anything the con wanted. He gave Lafon a 10 second stare before he relented. The score? Sour and Flock took over block O. What about it? Much, much about it. But Lafon looked away to hide the eagerness in his eyes. Perhaps, after all, it was not too late. He suggested humbly, you look a little sleepy. Do you want some coffee? Coffee? Sidero scratched. You got a cup for me? Certainly. I've got one put aside swiped it from the mesh I'll not the one I use myself. Um. Sidero leaned on the cell door. You know I could toss you in the green sleeves for stealing from the mesh hall. Chapter 8 Ah, Chief. Lafon grinned. You've been looking for trouble. O'Leary says you were messing around with the box from the laundry detail, Sidero said half-heartedly. But he didn't really like picking on Lafon, who was, after all, an agreeable inmate to have on occasion. All right. Where's the coffee? They didn't bother with Tanglefoot Fields in Honor Block A. Sidero just unlocked the door and walked in, hardly bothering to look at Lafon. He took three steps toward the neat little desk at the back of the cell, where Lafon had rigged up a drawing board and a table, where Lafon kept his little store of luxury goods. Three steps. And then, Suddenly aware that Lafon was very close to him, he turned, astonished a little too late. He saw that Lafon had snatched up a metal chair. He saw Lafon swinging it, his black face maniacal. He saw the chair coming down. He reached for his shoulder holster, but it was very much too late for that.